0: John chapter 5:39 to 44. John 5:39 to 44. Missing the face of Christ for the glory of men. Missing the face of Christ for the glory of men. John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them You have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words amen let's pray our father we're grateful for your word the scriptures that do indeed testify of Christ we pray lord that whenever we think of your word that we will not think of it in the ex- exclusive way in studying it in an academic way having mere knowledge but lord having the knowledge of Christ seeing Christ in these pages we pray, Lord, that we will not fall into the same temptation that Jesus' adversaries experienced. But may we, Lord, seek glory from you and not glory from men. May we see the face of Christ and not look at the face of men. And we ask in his name. Amen. In this chapter, we have seen at the last part that Jesus uses several testimonies or several witnesses to confirm to his adversaries to his foes that they should they ought to believe in him. He has already spoken in ways re- reference to the day of judgment and the testimonies that will be brought to bear against his adversaries, the unbelievers, the wicked on the day of judgment. The testimonies of God the Father, of the work of John John the Baptist and also the miracles that he was commissioned to perform, and as well now, the scriptures. The scriptures generally in verses 39 to 44, and then the scriptures specifically with Moses, which we'll see next time in verses 45 to 47. 39 to 44, the scriptures generally testify of Christ so that what Jesus is saying about himself is nothing new, is not a new teaching by a revolutionary, a cult leader, nothing like that. But what Jesus is teaching here about himself, his adversary should know that throughout the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, every place in the Old Testament, it testifies, it bears witness, it explains, it prophesies, it predicts Christ. It has Christ throughout all the pages of the Old Testament. And this is a very important doctrine that he brings to their attention so that they have no excuse for unbelief. So that he takes away all excuse of unbelief from them. Verse 39, you search the scriptures. You search the scriptures. The King James Version may say, search the scriptures in the imperative as a command. But it may be better to take it as an indicative, making a statement of fact. You search the scriptures. This is what you people do. You people, you my foes, you my enemies, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind first, when he's talking about the scriptures, he's not talking about. Old and New Testament, because at this point during his ministry, the New Testament was not written. He's talking about the Old Testament, the books of Genesis to Malachi. The books that we have in our Bible, the Protestant Bible, which was also the Jewish canon, the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament, the collection of books of the Old Testament, It it includes the 39 books that we have from Genesis to Malachi. He's referring to those books. In the Jewish enumeration of those books, there's one enumeration that has 22, another that has 24. But the way that we have enumerated them and compiled them, there are 39. The same exact books, but a different way of counting them. For example, one thing that the Jews do is they put... Hosea to Malachi in one book and consider them one book. So we consider them 12 books. They consider Hosea to Malachi one book. That's one of the ways in which their enumeration is different from our enumeration. Their numbering is different from ours. But in the content sense of the word, the content of the Hebrew canon or collection is the same as ours, the Protestant one. I say this to exclude the Catholic and Orthodox canons of the Old Testament. What's known as the apocryphal books or the euphemism that they use, the deuterocanonical books, those are not included in the Old Testament and those are not the books Jesus meant when he says the scriptures here in verse 39. He is excluding the Catholic and the Orthodox Church canons for those books of the Old Testament. He is not including them. He's excluding those books. Also, we note, he does not include the scriptures of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, or any other false religion. He doesn't mean that here. If we are thinking in wrong terms, in pluralistic terms, in universalistic terms, in terms that are ecumenical, we might think well, by scriptures he means the Hindu scriptures, Buddhist scriptures, Islamic scriptures, or any other religious scriptures. But he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean Mormon scriptures either. He doesn't mean any other scriptures. He's talking about the canon that I've just mentioned, the canon of the Protestant Old Testament, which is the books of Genesis to Malachi, 39 books. Those are the scriptures he means here. Further, further, In verses 39 to 40, Jesus is not criticizing knowledge of the Scriptures. He's not criticizing knowledge of the Scriptures. It has become a fad. It has become a fad or a human tradition, tradition of men, to say, well, if you are studying the Bible, if you know a lot about the Bible, then that's not good. You don't need to know all that about the Bible. It's got... It's got so much there, and you don't need to know that. The average Christian does not need to know, and in fact, it's detrimental for you to know. It's wrong for you to know. It's bad for you to know. And some denominations within Christianity have even preached that over the centuries, such as Catholicism has taught that it's wrong for you to have knowledge of the Bible, because if you have knowledge of the Bible, generally speaking, among the populace, among the common Christians, then you might misinterpret the Bible. Well, actually, what about them? If they say only the the magisterium or only the select few can be teachers of the Bible, then what is susceptible even among them? Whether you have 50 men or 100 men or 1,000 men over the years, what are you going to have even among them? Contradictions, misinterpretations, which is evident even in their history. One Pope contradicts another Pope. The previous Pope will have contradicted the current Pope. And then the future Pope will have contradicted the current Pope. And this happens throughout history. It happens throughout all Traditions, not just Catholic, but even Baptist or Presbyterian, you have them contradicting each other. I'm talking about the pastors, the theologians, the scholars, they contradict each other, even on very fundamental, essential doctrines. They undermine each other. So it doesn't do to say that it's good and right and virtuous to be ignorant of the Scriptures because we might misinterpret the Scriptures. Also, the Bible warns us about lacking knowledge of the scriptures. To use one example, Hosea the prophet. Hosea the prophet. If you find Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, then the next one is Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day and the prophet also will stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. In verse 1, he says, there's no knowledge of God in the land. And then in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why? Because they blatantly practice sin, since he's mentioning here in this passage. And he says here that when they reject knowledge, knowledge, verse 6, it shows by their rejection or forgetfulness of the law of God, the word of God, the scriptures, the books that they had in their possession. They were ignorant of them. They had no knowledge of them. Therefore, they practice sin. And because they practice sin, God punishes them. For Hosea, lack of knowledge is not vir- virtuous. It's a vice. Look at Hosea 6.6. 6. Hosea 6.6. 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's saying through Hosea, I don't want your rituals. I want loyalty and I want you to have knowledge of me. The true God. That's what I want, that you have knowledge of God. Hosea 8. Hosea 8 11 and 12. Hosea 8, 11 and 12. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Ephraim is another name for Israel, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel multiplied altars for sin idolatrous altars on hills and mountains everywhere, they would make altars to worship idols. And verse 12, they should have known better. I wrote for him, that means the nation as a whole, collectively, I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law. I gave them much information that they could read, much information that they could study, much information that they should have known so that it prevented them from idolatry. But what did they do? They regarded it as a strange thing. They regarded these precepts of the Word of God as a strange thing. They became strangers to the Scriptures. And God's saying that's not good. And even Jesus meant that, that we should know. For example, John 17:17. 17, 17. John 17:17 17, 17. Christ teaches us what we need to know. John 17:17 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's Christ's prayer for us. For us to be sanctified or made holy in the truth, and where are we going to find this truth so that we can become more and more holy? In His Word. The Word of God is the place. And even in the book of John, did Jesus not already confront somebody for not knowing what's in the Bible? Who should have known better? One of their own teachers. John chapter 3. Remember when Jesus was teaching Nicodemus about being born again, what it means to be born again, or the necessity of being born again to see God or the kingdom of God, when Nicodemus did not have a clue about what Jesus said. And Nicodemus was one of their revered, honorable teachers. What did Jesus say when Nicodemus did not understand? John 3, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Of course, we're supposed to study. Jesus is not disdaining and jettisoning the need to study the Bible. He's not doing that. He's just saying, when you do study it, don't miss the main point. That's his point. When you study it, don't miss the main point. Missing the main point is common, not only among Jewish scholars of the Bible, but even among Gentilic scholars of the Bible. You and I can have the same problem. You can easily find books, books hundreds and even thousands of pages long, written by Jews and written by Gentiles on the Bible with many, many, many words. Even very detailed studies of words found in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. They produce lexicons or dictionaries. They produce theological dictionaries. They produce these kinds of works. They produce concordances. A concordance is a book A thick book, a very big and thick book that records every occurrence of most of the words of the Bible, such as the word love or the word holy. These words, you can find every single place where they're found in these volumes, these books, compiled by scholars, both Jews and Gentiles, scholars who have studied this and compiled all this information. Now, these resources can be helpful. They can be helpful. Some of them are dangerous, but some of them can be helpful. But what's the problem? Many of these same scholars, even those that produce helpful resources, do not understand the main point of Scripture. And that's what he's addressing here. It's no good for scholars or for Christians generally to study the Bible And think that because you are very knowledgeable in factual knowledge of the Bible, therefore you have eternal life. Having factual knowledge, bare knowledge of Scripture, does not guarantee eternal life. We can't say and compare ourselves and say, well, I know more than my neighbor, I know more than my friend, I know more than my sibling. And therefore, I have eternal life and my sibling does not have eternal life. It doesn't work that way. It's not the bare knowledge of the Bible that produces eternal life. This is the point he's making. Because Nicodemus and these others, they did have much factual knowledge of the Bible, of the Old Testament. They did indeed have it. But it didn't help them because their confidence was a false confidence. Confidence in their ability to know, their ability to remember, their ability to explain, their ability to be more godly in a worldly sense or in a superficial sense, more godly than their neighbor. They put their confidence in those things and not in Christ. This is the danger. It's not only a danger among them, it's a danger among all of us to think that we have eternal life because... We have the Scriptures, or we have knowledge of the Scriptures. Yes, knowledge of the Scriptures are important. But to what end? This is what he says in 39. And it is these that bear witness of me. The Scriptures bear witness. They testify, they point to Jesus Christ. The Scriptures of the Old Testament point to Jesus Christ. And they missed it. They didn't see it. Now, it didn't begin when Jesus began saying the Scriptures testify of me. It does not begin when Paul the Apostle begins to say the Scriptures testify of Christ. It didn't begin when Peter the Apostle starts to preach from the day of Pentecost and starts to preach Christ from the Old Testament. It didn't start like that. He is saying here, The scriptures bear witness of me, meaning already embedded, ingrained in the pages of the Old Testament from the book of Genesis onward. The scriptures testify of him already Moses, Joshua, and then David and Isaiah and all the rest. They were preaching and teaching Jesus Christ way back in the Old Testament anticipating, predicting, prophesying the coming death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that if we believe in what he accomplishes on our behalf, if we believe in that, we receive eternal life. We are justified by faith. The grace of God conforms us to the image of Christ from that point onward. That's what Jesus meant here, that it did not... Start with him or anybody else during their ministry. Now, I do have uh, a few quotes here to show that this is not a a so-called Christian invention or an invention of the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, they have had their critics from their own lifetime in the first century onward. Even today, within Christianity and in other religions, false religions, the critics of the Apostle Paul and other apostles is numerous. You can find it very much in many sources. However, here we have evidence that even the Jews, when they read their own Old Testament, knew that the Old Testament was all about Christ. Quote, all, the, all prophets prophesied only for the days of the Messiah. Unquote. Quote, All prophets prophesied only for the days of the Messiah. From their work called the Sanhedrin. All prophets prophesied only for the days of the Messiah. So that means they're saying from Moses on to Malachi, they are all preaching and focusing on the days of Christ, Messiah. Another quote in the same work Sanhedrin says, quote, The world was created only for the Messiah, unquote. The world was created only for the Messiah. They believe that. Many of their teachers believe that the world was created for Christ. And is that not what the Apostle says in Colossians 1.15 and 16, or one fifteen to 17? All things were created for him and by him. Colossians 1.16. That's the same as what the Jews said. So Paul was not saying anything new in that regard. Another quote, in reference even to the death of the Messiah, because this was the main stumbling block. This was the main inhibition that the Jews had. They wanted Christ to come as a conquering king to provide a a permanent eternal kingdom on the earth so that they could have um, whatever prosperity they wanted. They were thinking about the physical world and their own health and wealth. But that was the main stumbling block. However, even among some, not all of their teachers, their rabbis, They had some who believed the following. This is taken from what's called um, a, a Midrash. And here I quote, quote, Rabbi Huna says in the name of Rabbi Acha, this is the quote, the sufferings are divided into three parts, meaning the sufferings of the world. The sufferings are divided into three parts. One for David, and the fathers, one for our own generation, and one for King Messiah, and one for King Messiah. As it is written, quote, He was wounded for our transgressions, which is a part of Isaiah 53, unquote. And when the hour comes, the Holy One, blessed be He, says to them, I must create him a new creation, as it is said, quote, this day have I begotten you, quoting from Psalm 2. You see what I'm saying here? This rabbi, saying it in the name of another rabbi, which means that these two rabbis believe this, they believed that the sufferings in the world are for the patriarchs of the Old Testament They're also for us as believers, but also there is a unique suffering for King Messiah, for Christ. There's a unique suffering for King Messiah Christ. And where do they get this idea that Christ is to suffer? They quote Isaiah 53 He was wounded for our transgressions. Quote unquote. He was wounded for our transgressions. And then they also believe that Messiah would rise from the dead because they quote from Psalm 2, 7, this day I have begotten you. And according to Acts 13, and 34, this is a reference to the new creation, that is, Christ would die, be buried, and three days later be raised from the dead, and that's what I have begotten you means. Today I have begotten you, meaning I've made you a new creation, that is, in a mortal, resurrected, glorified body, is what I am giving you today. That is on the third day, the day of resurrection. This is the Jews. These are the Jews who don't believe in, the, in Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. They are saying these things. They are saying these things. And this is what Jesus meant. You know these things. You know these things. They bear witness of me. Okay. If it was sufficiently taught among the Jews if it was sufficiently known among the Jews in Jesus' time and even before and even after, if it was sufficiently known, sufficiently taught that the scriptures bear witness of Christ, why do people not believe it? Why do people not believe it? Well, I've mentioned one reason why. And that one reason is that they don't want Christ to be a suffering Christ who suffers for our sins because they don't want to repent of their sins. What they would rather have Christ be is somebody who is the greatest physician of health and the the greatest businessman for our wealth. They want him to be the greatest physician and the greatest businessman for our health and our wealth. And also the greatest king because if he can be the king, Who would be the one who has access to the best of health and access to the best of wealth, then that king can provide that for us. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We have an incident that explains this very thing. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children? He fed them with the loaves and the fish. 5,000 plus women and children. Well, what did they want to do when they experienced that miracle? 6.15. 6.15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus resisted their desire to take him by force And make him king. They wanted him to be this kind of king messiah. The one who would provide all the health and the wealth that they would want. This is the reason why. One reason why they didn't want to believe in him. Because they didn't want to think about their sin in relation to him. They wanted to think about their health and wealth in relation to him. So they didn't like him. They didn't want him. For that reason. There's also another reason why they are unwilling to come. And that has to do with verses 40 and following. Verses 40 and following. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Unwilling. Unwilling. They knew better They had a will to do what they wanted to do, but they were unwilling. So here he's not ascribing it to mere ignorance. He's not ascribing it to them having the best of intentions. He's not saying that you are good people, it's just that you're faltering in this way. He's actually blaming them, accusing them of using their will in a pernicious way in a way that's going to destroy their souls. They are deliberately, intentionally unwilling to come to Christ. He's blaming them for it. He's not blaming God. He's not blaming himself. God and Christ will be vindicated on the day of judgment so that when that day happens, God will be found true, though every man a liar. He blames them for being unwilling. They, in their will, are using their will deliberately for wrong reasons, deliberately for sin, deliberately for even unbelief, because that's what he means by to come to me. To come to Christ is equated to believing in Christ. Coming to Christ equals believing in Christ. Example, John chapter 6 Verse 35. John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He uses these analogies or pictures of hunger and thirst to describe the spiritual reality: that we should hunger and we should thirst after Christ. And he says that he who believes in me shall never thirst. But he first says in parallel fashion, he says, he who comes to me shall not hunger. Which means if we come to Christ, we are believing in Christ. If we believe in Christ, we are coming to Christ. Therefore, what is it that prevents us? Our willful sin, our deliberate sin, that we knowingly pursue. We want that and we refuse to believe in Christ. But what is it that we refuse? That you may have life. You may have life. This is the enigma and this is the conundrum that we see in Scripture. Not only in Scripture but also in our own life. We see how It is so amazing, so stunning that someone could have everything set before him, everything presented right in front of him and still walk away from it. This happened with Adam and Eve. They did not have any sin on the day they were created. And yet, even though they had the whole garden all to themselves and their descendants, without any sin, they chose... Their will, they used their will to commit treason against the King of Heaven who created them and placed them in the garden. They used their will to disobey their Heavenly Father who created them and put them there in the garden. This is what they did when they had everything presented before them. They walked away from it. They walked away from it. If it happened to Adam and Eve in the garden it should not uh, surprise us. It should not stun us when we see that people do that today. Because he says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. They had the Son of God himself right there in their very presence. They had this King Messiah, which they preached. They had him right there before their very eyes. They had the one who performed miracles to vindicate his teaching right there before their very eyes. They had the master teacher right there before their eyes who expertly taught from the pages of the Old Testament and explained it to them and even refuted their objections. He had, they had him right there in front of them. But this is the stunning thing about Sin. Our will. When we pursue sin, it doesn't matter what is set before us. We could have a pot of gold right in front of us. Instead of that pot of gold, we will go and choose some dirt and put that in our safe deposit box in the bank. This is how corrupt we are in our blind and sinful state. We won't take the gold to the bank. And keep it safe there. We'll say no I don't want the gold. I'm going to go to my backyard. Pick up some dirt. A handful of dirt. And put it in my safe deposit box. This is because of sin. We have life offered to us. But we won't believe it. Well if we won't believe it. In this context. He will now emphasize in verses 41 to 44. Why it is in this context. They don't believe. And it has to do with seeking glory from men, seeking the praise of men, fearing man, delighting in what people think of us rather than what God thinks of us. That is essentially what we find in 41 to 44. He says in 41, I do not receive glory from men. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I do not receive glory from men doesn't mean that men don't glorify Him in the right way, such as the redeemed men don't glorify Him, or even on the day of judgment, every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't mean that. What he means by, I do not receive glory from men is, I don't receive the, the fickle flattery of men. I don't receive the things that people say and do to one another just so that you can be in one another's good graces, just so that you don't need to stand for what is right, just so that you can uh, excuse their sin or blink whenever they sin. This is what he means, I do not receive glory from men. He does not receive flattery from men because flattery from one another or toward one another causes us not to look at reality, causes us not to think about our sin and the need to repent of our sin by believing the the word of God. That's what he means, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. He knows human nature, he knows men, he knows that they do that. And when he's saying they do that, I know you, he's talking about people generally too. Not only are his opponents that way, but all of us unredeemed, this is the way we are. We love to please men. We love to receive flattery and praise from men. We want everybody to like us. We don't want anybody to, to be mean to us or say bad things to us or bad things about us behind our back. We don't like that. We don't want that. We want everybody to like us. Who, after all, doesn't want to or, or imagine or dream that he could be a celebrity? A lot of people want to be that. They want to have celebrity status. They want the praise of men. They want us, people want to be told, you are, you are very handsome. You are very beautiful. I like the way your hair is today. I like the way you speak. Oh, I like your house. I like your car. Oh, that you, this place where you work, it's a very good place. you take uh, take care of your property very well, and so on and so forth, right? We want the praise and the flattery of people, but that is sinful. When we are looking in those ways, when we are thinking about that, when that is what our fixation is, this is receiving glory from men, and this is common to all of us, and God knows that. But notice, when this is who we are, verse 42 You do not have the love of God in yourselves. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. You don't love God. If this is the way you think, if this is what your values are, these are your values, then you don't love God. The love of God is absent in you because then you would not be seeking the love of men, the praise of men, the flattery of men, you wouldn't be seeking that. That would not be your fixation. You would not be obsessed with that day by day. You would be seeking the praise of God. You would want God to say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. You would want Christ or God to say that to you. You would not want God to be ashamed of you. You would not want him to say, I want nothing to do with you. Depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You would not want God to ever say that to you. You would be seeking to fear God, not fear men. You would be seeking to love God, not love men, meaning loving sinful men and compromising with them and sinning with them you would not be doing that. Those who are seeking the glory of men, glory from men, praise of men, flattery from men, do not love God. They do not love God. Instead, if God has first overcome our our heart so that we're not that way anymore, if God loves us first, then we will love him. 1 John 4 Nineteen says, We love because He first loved us. Means that if God has transformed our heart, caused us to be born again to a living hope, if He has done that to us, then we begin to love Him. But if that has not happened, we do not love Him. In fact, we love men. We love the praise and the flattery of men. That's what we seek. Now, he illustrates verse 43. Illustration in 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Christ came into the world in the name of the Father. And he says, my Father, emphasizing again his unique relationship, divine relationship with God the Father. This is what we saw in 5:17 and 18. In 5:17, he comes in the name of the Father, his unique Father, because he's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 5:17 But he answered them, "My Father is working until now and I myself am working." For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. He has already asserted it and then proven that from chapter 5, the beginning of the chapter, middle of the chapter, until this point. So when he is telling them, My Father, I've come in the name of my Father, he has already given them... Ample truth on, upon which to reflect and to believe. He's already done that. I came in his name. And you still won't believe. You're still objecting. You're still raising criticisms about who I am and what I'm saying and what I'm doing. You're still doing that. You do not receive me. They don't receive or believe in him. Receiving and believing is also a synonym in here, the book of John. The example we have for this is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 11 to 13. John 1, 11 to 13. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They will not receive him. They will not believe in him. So, if they're not believing in him, speaking of the glory of men, who are they believing He says in 43, If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Now he is indicting them. He's telling them, If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. You will believe him. He means that if someone else says, I am a prophet, you'll believe him. Even if he's a false prophet. If someone else comes and says, I'm Christ, you will believe him, even though he's a false Christ. If someone else comes and says, I am a true teacher, I know. Listen to me, follow me. You will believe him as your true teacher. This is what you will do. Why? Because they were after the flattery of men and they went after the flattery of men because when one man flatters another man, then they don't expose one another's sins. This is the problem. We see this, for example, in John chapter seven verse 18. John 7:18. John 7:18, "He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him." At the beginning of John seven eighteen, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. The himself seeks his own glory. He's talking about some other teacher, some other prophet, some other Christ, meaning a false Christ. He's talking about others that they will happily receive. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Here too, Jesus explains himself to them but they would not believe. So why did they not believe? John 12:42. John 12:42. Nevertheless many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It says that at this point in his discourse with them, the rulers, that means the rulers of the synagogue, the teachers, administrators of the synagogue, they believed in him. That means they knew what he was saying was true. But they didn't openly confess him to others in their assembly, in their synagogue, because if they did so, the others who were in the majority would have forced them or expelled them out of the synagogue. That would be like a few people in the church know what's really going on, but if they said something, they don't want to say something because the majority of the people in the local church would throw them out of the church and and, and accuse them of being troublemakers. This is what's happening here. So the few who know the truth but don't actually stand up for the truth because they don't want to be thrown out, they remain there in that church 43, why? For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. In the original language, it actually says the word glory. NASB says approval, but original language, glory. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God, which brings us, it connects it to 718 and even to our passage in John chapter 5 seeking the glory of men. They wanted the praise of men. They feared men, so they flattered them. But this is a tendency that is always going to be the case, not just here in the book of John. It's always the case, and we have to be on guard. Do not listen to people who come in their own name. They have no sound doctrine. They have no sound life you have you have no knowledge of them, you don't know them personally. you might't hear their name as a famous name, but you don't know anything about them. You don't know if how they would treat you if you ever met them in person. You've never been inside their house. they have never been inside your house, so on. You don't know things about them. You only know how it is advertised, and we know how advertisements work right? You only know what's advertised, so you have to be cautious and check out their life, check out their doctrine and examine it according to Scripture and don't receive them unless they match Scripture. 44, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? How can you believe? He's actually saying... Here, when he says, how can you believe? He's saying it's impossible for you to believe. You are incapable of believing in the true gospel if you are seeking glory from men. If you have the love of men inside you, if you are so consumed, if you are so obsessed with the glory from men, then it's impossible for you to seek glory from God, to seek the praise of God who will say to you, Well done, good and faithful slave. It's impossible for that to happen. That's how dangerous this is. You see how dangerous it is? People will say that it's okay. You have to put up with flattery sometimes. You have to deal with it. You know, you have to live in the world. After all, I need to save my job. Yes, that has happened. That has been said to me. It has been said that if you would just do this some... If you would just do it enough, then you could keep your position. You could keep your your job. You could keep your pastorate. You could keep your professorate. You wouldn't have to be in the bad books of the the administration. These kinds of things have been said, and they're said commonly as justification for why people stay in the condition in which they stay, stay in the employment in which they stay. This is how they think. They think that we're not going to do this because it's going to jeopardize us. Well, he's saying here, then you cannot believe. How can you believe? You can't believe, he means, when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. It's impossible. That's how dangerous it is. Believing the gospel has to mean rejecting the praise of men. And 44 concludes, this glory that is from the one and only God. Glory from the one and only God. There is only one true and living God manifested as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, invisible persons, because God is Spirit. Invisible persons, yet one God, as described in Scripture. This is the only one God. There is no other God. The gods of all other religions are false because they deny the Trinity, the triunity of God, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, invisible Spirit, they are one God. Three persons, one God. They deny that. So when they deny that, it's impossible for them to seek glory from God. Furthermore, we have been mentioning this glory of God and we have cited, for example, Matthew chapter 25, alluded to that chapter, uh, that passage, but let's see where he says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. Matthew 25, 21. This is the parable of the talents of money. When... Our Lord holds us accountable for what he has given to us. If we have been faithful, he will say the following. twenty-five, twenty-one, Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the The joy of your master. That is, we, if we are faithful to him, and we can only be faithful if we have faith, right? If we have true faith in him, it means that we are seeking the love of God, we are seeking the glory of God. And then at that point, on that day of judgment, he will receive us as good and faithful. Another example we find in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 Hebrews 2:11 For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed To call us brethren or brothers. Why? Because we all have one father. Now if we have one father. And Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brother. Are we going to be ashamed to call him brother? Are we going to be ashamed to call him master? Are we going to be ashamed to call him Lord? Are we going to be ashamed of him? (coughs) In the presence of men. If we are going to be ashamed of him in the presence of men, he will be ashamed of us, is the point. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 16. Hebrews 11 and verse 16. Abraham and those who have the faith of Abraham and others. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. God has prepared a wonderful, eternal, heavenly city in which we will dwell forever and ever, right? And if that is what God has prepared for us, He's not ashamed of us. God is not ashamed to be called their God. If God would lower himself, if God would condescend, if God would do that to be identified with us to give us eternal glory, then why won't we seek the glory of God now? We ought to, if we're following in the footsteps of Abraham. Now, what if we don't? If we are not seeking glory from the one and only God, what will happen since we are in Hebrews, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. We'll start at 35. 10.35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. <coughs> if we shrink back, we shrink back to destruction and God has no pleasure in us. Similarly, First John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children... Abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Let us be those who seek glory from the one and only God. Let's read Scripture and see Christ in it and attach ourselves, cling to Christ. Let's do that and not to the world and not to the praise that comes from the world. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.